What's up, everyone? This is Zach, your host of the Auxoro podcast, The Voice of Music. And this week, we sat down with Noel Skaggs of Fits and the Tantrums. I had the pleasure of seeing Noel at Red Rocks last month out in Denver. The entire show, Fits and the Tantrums, brought an incredible energy. Not a single person in the crowd was standing still. And Noelle's vocals, combined with her movements and stage presence, are absolutely electrifying. Noelle has been at all different levels of the game with so much valuable experience. We spoke about the realities of making money off of music, what it takes to stay healthy and thrive on tour, the influences behind her songwriting process, and much more. That rhymed. She has a new single that just dropped today called Great For You, so please go check that out as well. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Noelle Skaggs. To get right into it, I was going over a few interviews that you had done in the past. And one of the quotes that stood out to me, you said that you think the power of music in general transcends beyond all the bullshit in the world. And it has this subconscious pull on the living spirit and it impacts emotion and courage when otherwise absent. And for me, that was extremely powerful because I know music in my life has been extremely powerful, even though I haven't been the one performing it at places where other things were absent in my life, I could always turn to music to get through some sort of things that were difficult. So for you, what would you think are some of those moments in your life, whether it be performing music or listening to other people's music, where it's helped you almost push through to that next level that you needed or maybe helped you see things in a different way that you maybe wouldn't have been able to without music? I mean, I, I would probably say that in my entire life, it's kind of been that, you know, it's been an uplifting kind of thing. It's, it's shown me my power, you know, and, and being like a, a woman in this world and, you know, being able to kind of give my message to a large audience in in a responsible kind of way, you know, it's, it's really allowed me to kind of show who I am, you know, without any barriers like the honesty that I show on stage is exactly who I am in my, my normal life. You know, like, um, I've never really been afraid of, you know, getting to know people and putting myself out to kind of make other people feel comfortable. And, you know, especially when I'm, you know, having people over to my house, like I'm, you know, talking about just one of my favorite things in life is to host people. Um, and I kind of, you know, I got that from my grandmother, but also just with being on stage and meeting up the amount of people that I meet on a regular basis, it has become a really important journey in my life to be able to kind of give that moment to people to allow them to kind of free themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's like, I grew up with disco music and that was all about partying and you know, like funk and, and all of these things. And then I also, you know, grew up listening to music that was super connected to the community. You know, a lot of, you know, African-American like R&B and soul music and hip hop and a lot of the things that I grew up listening to, you know, it was, it was basically reflective of the world around them. And that's something that I always wanted to translate in to my music in some way, you know, um, in this uplifting manner. So I think for me, it's always been this kind of universal moment of me kind of discovering myself and allowing other people to see me, you know, in a way that, that I probably wouldn't have done had music not been a part of my life. Yeah. And you mentioned the hip hop background and music playing in the house when you were a kid. And I saw that when you were younger, and I'm sure you still do, but you wrote down every single song that you like and you kept a booklet of songs and you were di dissecting all of these tracks of different genres. How did that early drive to 
pull apart the music and kind of understand the music, feed into your songwriting process today and kind of that mindset that you have hosting on stage and kind of letting the music work through you? I think one thing it taught me was practice, you know, because initially what I had been doing was trying to learn the song down to the T so that I could personally perform it, you know, so that I could sing it and feel comfortable with it and to understand what the songs were about, you know, to kind of find either my own personal connection to them or to really understand what the artist was trying to convey or what the songwriter was trying to convey um, in, in those, in those songs. So for me, it made me a better lyricist, you know, and being able to kind of tell a story when you, you know, really look at hip hop and the way that the stories are told, you know, that was something that I always really paid attention to and wanted to kind of put into my music in, in a way, you Mm -hmm. know, um, uh, and then being very clever with it. And, and that's something that takes a lot of time and practice to really master, you know? So I think that initial kind of, you know, wanting to learn was, wasn't making me a better artist if that's what I was going to do later on. You know, I think like around that time I was, I was probably only about 10 years old when I first started really doing that. Um, so I kind of grew into it. So my songwriting and my love for songwriting came from those earlier kind of, you know, uh, uh, that curiosity that I had about just like learning all of the different songs that I was completely in love with. And tying into your energy on stage, one thing that I saw, you said that you thought you may be an introvert or you have some introverted tendencies. Yeah. I I can definitely identify with that, not to the point where I'm performing in front of thousands of people because I'll never do that, but to the point where a lot of people think that introverts are not energetic. I think that there's a misconception, like a myth around intro introvertedness where people think that you can't put on that energy or you can't maintain that energy, but it's more like introverts need their time alone and recharge from spending time alone and you don't you don't always have to be on how how have you kind of been able to reconcile the aspect of being on on stage touring even in interviews and things when you're not on stage and that are taking up your time with having that alone time and allowing yourself that space to recharge I think it was like recognizing how not taking time for myself and and really making it an important step in my career, like not, not really understanding the importance of it until I started to burn out um, and started to have, you know, like dealing with different like depression issues and not wanting to be around people, but not necessarily wanting to be around people because I needed to self care. It was just because I couldn't handle being around anybody else. I I think it was when I started to recognize, you know, the, the course that I was taking to kind of get myself away from things, but it wasn't necessarily the healthiest and the healthiest manner. Um, until I recognized that I, I, I didn't realize how important self care was, you know, because, when you're in this industry and when you're touring so much, you're giving yourself to a lot of people and you often don't get that opportunity to kind of like turn yourself off and, and re-energize for the next thing, you know, um, earlier in our, in our touring career. And I mean, it's still ongoing obviously, but Mm. early in our touring career, we basically said yes to every opportunity that we'd gotten. So anything that came up that could, you know, remotely be like go well for us, we accepted it. And one of these examples is kind of, I would say like our second year ever doing South by Southwest. And at that point we had had a buzz about us, you know, we had already entered into, um, getting into danger bird records at that point. So more than just a dream was coming out. And that was like, this was our chance to basically show 
the entire world, you know, that was there. <laughs> That's how yeah. myself was. <laughs> that we were a force, you know, and we were going to, you know, put our stamp in and let people know that we were fits in the tantrums and this is what we do and this is why you should be excited about us, you know, and having fun with it. Like just being ourselves is this like energetic live band that was doing, you know, kind of music that kind of threw you back into history and this like this soul music nostalgia, but then also this kind of modern flair. Mm-hmm. Like we were doing, you know, doing things a lot of people were still trying to kind of figure out for modern day sound. Um, you know, so so we did everything, you know, and I remember right before we had to do one of our showcases or like a uh, interview that I hadn't eaten the entire afternoon. So I got the worst ocular migraine. And I remember looking at our publicist and saying, if someone doesn't get me something to eat, I'm not going to be able to get through the rest of this day. Like I'm literally going to have to go home. That's a lot more polite than I would have been. I would have been like, yo, like get me some fucking food right now. (laughs) Yeah, because I didn't know, I didn't know what was going on. Like I had never experienced that. Yeah. Like, like dizzying. I couldn't see. It was like the scariest thing. Cause I'm at this point, like, I'm like, what is going on? But I hadn't, you know, I hadn't even thought that that was a possibility at my age at that time that my body was going to like say, Hey, Noelle, mm-hmm. you need to focus on me for a second. You know what I mean? Um, because my, my interest was in a completely different world, you know? Yeah. So it was that moment that you know, after we had that experience at South by, I'd gotten laryngitis again. Like, you know, that was, I had to focus on a lot of things that were going on with my body because it was fatigued. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a conversation with our managers and we were like, listen, like we get that we have to do this stuff, but we're going to need you guys to balance it out because it's not good for me or for Fitz to yeah. do that. And I can't do it anymore. And I'm not going to, you know, so yeah. We have to find the balance in in that, and it it really sh- helps shape, you know, how I look at what's super important for me. Yes, I am a workaholic, but I also love to be out with my friends, and I love having experiences that have nothing to do with music because it helps in my creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, like it almost refuels your recreate refuels your creative engine in a way. Having experiences away from music. Exactly. You know, so I've, I've, I think I've embraced this kind of introverted form in that I am a creature of habit. I kind of, you know, like I go to the same coffee shop that's in the same way. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, I, I live in Nashville, but I also have, I grew up in LA. So I still, you know, kind of like come here frequently and I have my favorite places I like to go and I have a favorite place to stay. And for me, it's just like that inner comfort. Like I know where everything is in this one little place. And that makes me feel good because the rest of my time is spent hopping on planes and being in a city for 12 hours. If that, you know what I mean? And like meeting all of these different people that I may never see again. And I've heard you and Fitz talk about a lot, how you're saying before that you constantly took every opportunity. Like you were saying, you never said no and especially when you were got you guys were touring constantly the first few years and obviously when you get to the level that you're at you can't just say yes to everything so do you feel like there's you've almost had to reclaim a power in the word no like you like picking and choosing the opportunities of like becoming more comfortable with telling people no at the cost of keeping yourself healthy mentally and physically on tour yeah. I mean, it's, you know, in places where we can do that, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make sense for us to say no, you know, no to something, you know, especially when you're thinking more on the avenues of, you know, doing television and stuff like that. There's just certain things that we're, we're not going to be able to pass on because it's time, you yeah. know? Um, so scheduling sometimes plays a big role in that and you have to be able to kind of work your, yourself around it. One of my things now going on tour is I bring my dog with, so she's on every tour with us, uh, for the last, for the last two years, she's been with us and it gets me outside. 
you know, it gets me outside of the venue. I go hiking with her, you know, it kind of brings this piece of home that we would otherwise be missing, you know, on the road. And just like the comfort of like an animal or when the kids, like the guys all have children. So when their kids come on the road with us and their wives come and they hang out with us for like a week or so, or a few days, like it kind of just gives you this, like, okay, I do have a route somewhere. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're not just kind of floating about and, 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 and yeah, no, have, having a dog, especially knowing how being around my own dog makes me feel. I couldn't imagine my dog not being there. If I'm backstage about to perform, it would make such a world of difference if I was able to just chill out with my dog for a little bit. Yeah. And she's great. You know, it's, it's really nice when she has the temperament for traveling in this, in this way, like, you know, she's been traveling with me since she was, you know, one years old. Um, so she's, and she just has the temperament for it. You know, I, I don't know what I would do if she could not handle it. You know, I'd have to get, get something else, um, <laughs> to, to kind of, you know, like cope with the experience and stuff. But yeah, that's, you know, one of the things that I've, I've found that's really helpful is having something that can kind of bring you back home and, you know, whether it's conversations with your friends and FaceTimes and, you know, just making sure that you're getting out of the space of just being on the bus, in the parking lot, in the venue, back on the bus, on the road, sleeping, like it becomes this like redundant routine. So if you can kind of break out of that and have some kind of, you know, space that you can enter into that, you know, can kind of reconnect you with yourself. I think that that's super important. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I wish that more artists would do that because it's really easy to get caught up in, especially when you're a younger band, get up caught up in the party and get caught up in the bars and all of these things that wear down in your body. And as you get older, it starts to take effect, you know, so you, you have to find different mechanisms with dealing with that disconnect that you feel. Um, Yeah. And it's not publicized as much the healthier lifestyle on tour. And I mean, it's because, too, people don't really want to hear, like, I'm just talking purely as a listener, but, like, no one wants to write a song about playing a show and then going to bed at 9 p.m. and then, like, waking up and eating a healthy breakfast. Like, people love hearing the, the partying aspect of it and, like, the drinking and drugs and whatever and, like, the whole thing that comes with being a rock star and a pop star. And the average listener, the average fan that shows up to the concert isn't really fully aware of the realities of what it takes to keep your bodies healthy. And I'm learning every day as I speak to more and more artists, like what it actually takes to stay healthy for two months, six months, like two years straight on tour. It's pretty, pretty unbelievable. That's interesting. That's one of the reasons why I've, I've really become a huge fan of Vic Mensa. Um, <laughs> he's an incredible artist and, you know, really promoting Positive thinking and positive behavior is, is how I would state it. Like he doesn't glorify drugs and, and he feels that it's the responsibility of artists, especially in the hip hop world that are really driving, you know, kids and, and, and what they do in their daily lives. You know, that's like really inspiring, you know, people around the world to take some ownership in what they're saying, you know? Um, And that kind of circles back to, you know, my statement when I was talking about how music transcends certain things. Music is a very powerful tool when it's used correctly, because nine times out of 10, when you first listen to a song, the first emotion that hits you is either the groove of the music that you're hearing or the tone of the vocalist and the way that they're, you know, uh, translating the song. And then it's the words. So like the second listen, second or third listen, I would say you're probably honed into what the song is talking about. Unless you're like that diehard fan where every single nuance of the song you're listening to and you're absorbing. You know what I mean? Most first listens, it's an emotional response that you're having. So when you're having this emotional response to something that's like a party record, you know, it's like our music, for instance. We have a very juxtaposed way in the way that we approach our storylines and our, in our songs, you know? So if you took money grabber, for instance, and what that song is about, that song is about a gold digger. Yeah. And 
It is about the experience of being with somebody that literally just wanted you for your worldly possessions and not necessarily for you and how that turns into something else. But the music first listen to that song. It's like, it gets you energized. It makes you happy. It's like all of these things, but it's a very sad song about love and loss in this, in this very, you know, in, in this way of, of the world where everything is about consumerism and being used for that, you know? Um, so it's, I, I really love Vic because he comes and he is really trying to m- promote this idea of being responsible and what we're promoting as artists. You know, it's like, I don't go to bars after my, my shows every night. So why would I sing about that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I know that it's like, you know, it's like fun to have these like fun filled moments that are outside of music and stuff like that. But like my songs, you know, are, are about different things because I'm not completely connected to that world. I'm not connected to the party world. I don't do drugs, you know, like I had my sense of it when I was a kid, but like as an adult, like the only thing that I really do is drink. And it's like two things, wine and tequila. The upper and the downer. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's cool to hear stories about Vic and other people in the music industry that are making it cool to be about your business and about your mental health and not always like what sells most of the time. Yeah. And I think we need that, you know, because we're, we're in this world right now where we're, we're, we have so much access to information mm-hmm. and not all of it is good. You know what I mean? Like all of the stuff that's had been going on with suicide and ODing and you actually seeing it from legacy artists, you know, people that are, are, are committing suicide or ODing on different prescription medication. You know what I mean? Like it is more, it's more so in your face now than I think it was when I was a kid because of the, the access that the instant access that you have with your cell phone and with social media and all of these things. So I think now people are starting to realize that there needs to be better messaging that's sent out there. It may not be what everybody wants to hear, you know what I mean? But if you can do it in a way that people can absorb and still have a good time, still have that emotional feeling of elated, you know, feeling or being touched in some emotional way, if you're able to do that and still promote, you know, a, a positive message that in turn influences an entire community of mm-hmm. listeners, then you're doing something really amazing for the world that I think, you know, it really needs to be seen nowadays. You know, I think people yeah. are starting to realize that. So going back to your roots a little bit, you obviously you've watched a ton of hip hop artists perform. You've worked with the black eyed peas, dilated peoples. You were there when Fergie started, you sang on Ella Funk, I saw a little bit. And your and your first concert was Wu Tang, which is awesome. I um I actually spoke to Mathematics uh last year. He's he's a really cool dude, one of their DJs. Um but I saw that Fitz credits you for a lot of how the band performs and how they engage with the audience and a lot of the movements during the set. And I was wondering if a lot of that comes from your experience working in hip hop, because it does seem like there's a very hip hop element to it or like some hip hop elements. I actually saw you guys at Red Rocks a few, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I was wondering how those hip hop elements have translated into the live performance and have kind of taken on a life of its own as you've been with Fits and the Tantrums. Um, I definitely think about probably about 85% of my style in performing came from my experiences and watching my friends in the hip hop community perform. Mm -hmm. Um, It, you know, just really kind of having the audience involved, you know, one of our, our main things is fits of the tantrums is talking about having the, uh, the audience be the seventh member of the band. And that's reality because you're feeding, you know, you're feeding off their energy as much as they're feeding off yours. So you want them to kind of, you want everybody that's watching you to kind of feel like they have a moment to like yell and shout and sing the song along with you. And we're listening to you when you're doing that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, so I would say probably about 85% of that is, is, you know, really kind of inspired me as a performer one, because I was trying to figure out when I was really young, you know, like, like coming up in the industry and trying to figure out, you know, how I wanted to convey my message in a live setting, you know, it was really trying to figure out what I was doing with my hands and with my body and where I was placing myself on stage, you know, and getting out of my head and, and feeling natural about it. Um, and being able to kind of, you know, have a call and response moment with the audience without necessarily needing to talk between every single song, you know, making a speech between every single song. And while you're doing all of that, you're a maestro with the tambourine on yeah. stage. And uh, no, that's it's I feel like that's a very understated part of their performance because people probably see the tambourine and they're like, oh, like. You know, I played that in middle school, like whatever, like you just shake it a little bit, but you're doing very coordinated beats with the rhythm section. You're doing it while you're singing, moving, keeping the audience going, engaging with them at the same time. Is there, I would say, what, like, what are the most difficult aspects of working the tambourine during the live performance? Because I feel like that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, definitely staying on pace with the drummer. You know, I'm, I'm listening to what's happening with the drums when I'm playing because the, the tambourine in itself is a very, you know, loud instrument. So if you mess up, you can hear it, you know, um, especially if you have ears that are kind of tuned into that. And we do get a lot of, you know, people that are musicians and drummers in the audience, you know, and they, they pay attention to the rhythm section. So I always learned how to actually play with the drummer. So I'm playing with the hi-hat. So everything that John is doing on the hi-hats, I'm mimicking on the tambourine. Um, and it just kind of like doubles up on the sound. You know, it's a very technical kind of thing. There is, you know, styles of playing tambourine that I don't know how to do. You know, um, you know, it really comes from from church playing and stuff like that, like watching, you know, people that that perform in choirs and stuff and they're playing with skins. I don't know how to do that. That is a very intricate form of tambourine playing. Um, I play it more in the kind of like pop and in, in modern kind of like rock sense. And, you know, it is, it is the fabric of a lot of our earlier songs. Um, the first, I would say like the first two records have a lot of tambourine, uh, in the tracks out of my league being one of them. Um, and it has different patterns and stuff. It's just, you know, it's just like, if you're going to learn how to play the instrument, you have to treat it like you would any other instrument because it is loud. And if you don't know what you're doing, it doesn't sound good. It just sounds like jingle bells, mm-hmm. you know, especially, especially to me when I'm like watching people, I'm like, Oh God, get it away from the mic. Cause you know, it's distracting me from what you're saying because you're not synced up with the drummer. Yeah. You know? Um, so that's, that's just my thing on it. You were saying before the, the call and response aspect of the songs and engaging with the audience. How are you able to channel that crowd energy so effectively, especially during the songwriting process in the studio? Because I'm sure you guys are thinking about the live performance while you're writing, but it must be difficult to try to picture that energy or kind of like get in that headspace when you're in the studio or you're in a room working with one or two other people. How are you able to kind of get into that zone and work through those intricacies of making an anthemic course? Um, I think it's just what, you know, what you want to execute. I would say like more than just a dream, that record was super inspired by our experiences on our earlier tours. And when, and watching the audience sing back the choruses of our earlier songs. So we went in with the intent of trying to come up with the most anthemic moments that would inspire the audience to sing back to us. So that's why we got Spark and, you know, the walker with, ah, yeah, 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 because we could hear the audience actually singing those moments back. And then having Out of My League be a very simple, almost jingle tune and having this post-chorus moment that you could sing, ooh, 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 ooh. You know what I mean? Like it just gives you like a little, little ear candy that you can kind of hold on to. If you don't know all the words, at least, you know, that moment, you know, Um, and you, and you find that a lot in in music, you know, the post chorus and, 
the ooze has become a very popular, you know, kind of formula for songwriting and alternative and pop, you know, as we have been coming up in the industry. Um, so I think it's just kind of like what you want to execute, like what moment, oh yeah, this moment here will be perfect for the audience to sing, you yeah. know, kind of make it inclusive in this way when you're going in to actually record this song properly and add all of the ear candy, you know, that could be used in your favor <laughs> when you're performing, you know? Um, and I think it's also, you know, just kind of like, it's really great being in a band, you know, and, and being able to kind of feed off of that energy, you know, of a live instrument, you know what I mean? That kind of gives you the, the same freedom that the audience has, you know? So for me, like, I kind of try to take that in the studio with me, like, like the same way that I feed off of the drums to play tambourine, I try to feed off of the, you know, like the, the production elements in the rhythm section to be able to kind of perform. Do you ever find yourself almost too energetic on stage? Like you're, you catch yourself, you're like, oh, holy shit, like I almost just jumped off the stage right there. Like I better tone it down a little bit. Or is that like not a problem at all working, like playing off of the instruments or something? lost myself on stage for sure I'm I think I'm a little bit afraid of heights in a way so I don't think you'll ever find me stage diving um <laughs> I've seen now now without a parachute yeah yeah I've seen I've seen Fitz do it and you know I I hesitate every now and again when I'm going to go step up on a riser because I just like if I'm not paying attention and I fall off you know what I mean? Like I I I I'm honestly kind of conscious of that and sometimes to a fault. Um, but as far as just like, I think just like energetically speaking, when I'm like, when I'm kind of feeding into the audience, I'm always looking for that kind of like one group of people or that, you know, you, you got to find something to kind of feed the energy off of and then yeah. just the show bigger. So would you be able to walk me through what a vocal warm up is before a show? Because like, I'm, I'm very interested in some of the behind the scenes warming up aspects that go on I, I, coming from a background in baseball I know like it, even though it, it's completely different than music but there's still like this hour and a half to two hour pre-game element where fans aren't there yet but like you're still stretching and preparing yourself for a period of time and then people see you and then you leave so people don't see like all the work that goes into it and I feel like that's something that's definitely prevalent in music at least because you don't really see all of the warming up that goes on before or like after a show or what it takes to maintain your voice in between shows like all the things that you do to take care of it so what are some of the most important things that you do especially when you're on a, a tour for months at a time that you do to take care of your voice during before shows and in between shows Mine, mine kind of goes in, in stages. So like earlier on in a tour, normally my, my muscle and, you know, it's, it's getting into the process of singing every single day at a, at a, at a high capacity. So I kind of have to like warm into it. Um, so I have songs that I'll just kind of like sing as I'm getting ready. Um, you know, just to kind of like warm up in different chambers of my voice. That's something that I like to do. I also have a warm-up tape that I utilize that I get from my technique trainer. Mm -hmm. um, and during my touring process, I tend to work with her. So we'll do like Skype calls and stuff like that. And it just kind of gets me prepped for the next week in, of, of work that I'm doing and any technical issues that I've been having, we can kind of, you know, fix from there. Um, but it goes in different stages. As it gets later on in the tour, I try to reserve as much of my voice as I possibly can. So I'll just do minimal warm-ups in comparison to what I would do in a mid-tour kind of situation. Because at that point, like I have to give my vocal cords a break. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of talking that goes on. I tend to watch a lot of, you know, law and order at this point. So I'm always on the bus. Um <laughs> There's like all these like different things, but yeah, yeah, I do like a few things that are for different chambers in my voice. So I know where to place things and, you know, it, it, it becomes like just kind of like an automatic thing as well, because you're singing the same songs every night, you yeah. know, it's not yeah. like you're singing something different where your voice has to figure out how to utilize the muscles in a certain way, you yeah. know, or where to position your, your airflow, mm -hmm. you know? 
Um, so at that point, it, it becomes easier to sing those songs, even when you don't feel like you can do it. It's just like an automatic thing because your muscle already knows where to go or your voice and your breathing already knows where to go because you've been doing it for so long. Yeah. And I saw something the other day that if you're constantly moving during a performance, and I think it was like a 90 minute performance, you can burn between 2000 and 3000 calories for a single show, which is insane. Like the, I, I hadn't even thought about that aspect of it. That's like a full day's meal or more than a full day's meal that you're burning on stage and without the singing aspect, just the moving around. So it's, it's so important to just do those things to take care of your voice and take care of your body. Yeah. And lots of water. Like people underestimate yeah. how important water is in your vocal routine. Water, water is great. I have hot water mixed with a couple of tea bags. So technically it still is water. But yeah, good. a good trick is also slippery elm capsules. It's something that we have on our writer. So, oh, I haven't tried that. Yeah, do that in tea, and it's just like this kind of, you know, like this like slick sludge that goes down. It kind of coats your throat and and yeah. protects your vocal cords, and it's you know it's great for that. Next time I'm screeching out high notes in the shower, I'll be sure to do that so I don't damage my vocal cords. I love that. So before you started performing professionally i saw that you studied music business and marketing in school and you studied songwriting but you didn't necessarily always want to be an artist on stage and you were motivated by a lot of the legalities behind the music industry like contracts language numbers and things like that and not a lot of artists go through that period and they don't have that insight where they're studying the business side of the industry first and then they become an artist on stage and they're performing what do you what do you think are the most important things that you were able to take away from studying things like contracts and numbers and the business aspect of like making people trade their money and time for art because that's eventually like what you have to do if you want to make a living off of music you have to make people want to give you their money or their time or both for the art that you're putting out what are the most important things you think you were able to take away while you were studying and i'm sure you're still constantly keeping up on things like that yeah you know you try to as much as you can now it's you know you have lawyers and and people that kind of help make sense of things for you have to like physically go in and and look it up. But um, I would say for me, it became knowing what to ask for and knowing what you were being hustled in, hustled into. You know, uh, when you're first starting, it's really easy to get locked into agreements that don't necessarily benefit you in the long run. It's really easy to kind of not one track what's going on with your music in a way. You know, I knew a lot of people that weren't necessarily signed, but they had songs out and they didn't even know that you could collect revenue from your performance rights agency. So they didn't even have their songs assigned to anything. They were just in the stratosphere making money and they, no one was collecting it for them. You know, I, I know I even still to this day, I know a lot of songwriters that don't have anybody administrating their publishing and administrating are basically people that go in and they find your money for you. And they collect it from all the dis- different resources in this, in this atmosphere of music, you know, what, and, and then also understanding what my commodity is and understanding copyright. Um, I feel like anybody that is getting into music outside of what type of advance they're getting through their record label, they need to understand what they're paying back, you know, and they need to have an understanding of what that's going to look like in the long run. So it may be happy go lucky the first record and the second record, you realize that you're broke because you owe the record company so much money and you haven't recouped that yet. You know, so it's just paying attention to your business. If you want it to be a career, you have to understand that it is a business too. It's not you know, like the minute you start putting your stuff in a, in a world where, you know, people are going to buy it, people are going to listen to it, you know, you want to make sure that you're taken care of. You know, a lot of people can say that, you know, they're not doing it for this reason, but why not do something that's going to enable you to do it for the rest of your life without having to worry about that? It seems like your knowledge in 
the music business beforehand, especially dealing with things like contract negotiations, would make it harder for someone on the outside to come in and hustle you, like you were saying, or bullshit you. And I signed agreements that weren't necessarily like everything that you want, okay, everything that is going to shape out the way that it should. And at the end of the day, you have to decide what's better, getting the song out and being able to take the hit on the back end for this or just passing on it completely and hoping somebody else steps up to the plate with a better offer. You know, like you kind of have to make that informed decision because you're not always going to get everything that you want, you know, like it's a negotiation for a reason. Um, But having some clue of what is being said to you or what you're reading and what your attorney is, is telling you, you know, it is, it's very, very, very helpful. And it, it makes you more informed about what you're getting yourself involved in. And bringing the, the whole business aspect into it. I think when a lot of people uh, and a lot of creatives, when they hear business or the term commercial, it, it might get a bad rap. Like if someone is talking about how to make money for something or, or how to spread it to the masses, it, it gets a bad rap. But at the end of the day, if selling out or it used to be called selling, selling out. Yeah. People still call it selling out. And, but at the end of the day, if you want to pay, if you want to pay your bills with music, you have to gain mass approval on some level. And there, there's like a science behind it, like making, some of these anthems or songs that have an anchor i've heard you talk about it before like a wheel of feeling an underlying melody or cadence that's catchy and kind of anchors the song is there is that something that you think about especially when you are writing songs that you are trying to reach tons of people like at the end of the day you want to reach a lot of people and that's like what an artist dreams about Yeah, it's interesting that we're talking about this because I think the rap that when you're talking about, say, popular music or pop music. Yeah. It started getting a bad rap because people were literally doing the worst songs ever and they were called pop songs. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Or uh, or consider the worst songs ever. Some of them were literally the worst songs ever. Like the lyrics were just so dumb, but they end up reaching millions of people, you know, and you're like, you, you know, like you sold out on this level. Um, I think the bad rap comes from doing things badly in the pop form. However, popular, like pop music in general is not something that's bad. You think about Prince, you think about Bowie, you think about all of these people that were legendary artists. They were innovators in what they were doing, but they were also pop artists, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just kind of like laugh about that. You know, if you're, if you're literally living your entire career based upon money, you are never going to be happy. Yeah. You're never going to find your, your real self as an artist. Your music is going to burn out. You're going to play catch up for the rest of your career. You know what I mean? Like that's really selling yourself out. You're selling yourself short is, is, is really what the term is, you know, for me. But when I, you know, when I kind of think about like, you know, people's perspective on, on selling out. One of my comments back to people was always, yeah, we sell out shows every night because we didn't get into this business to basically starve to death doing our art. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I don't know anybody that wants to do that, you know, that is content with doing that. And anyone that says that they are is fucking lying. You know, (laughs) like it's just like you're bullshitting yourself because at the end of the day, We all want our art. If we're getting into the music business and we're getting into careers in music, it's because we want our music to be shared far and wide as humanly possible. And we want to do what we love to do without having to work at Starbucks or, and I'm not like lowering any of those positions. Like I've done all that work. I've worked at Baskin and Robbins. I've worked as a stylist. I've worked at J crew. I've done all of the footwork and trying to do music and have a job at the same time. And for me, I was working towards never having to do that again because my career and my life were passionate about music. Yeah. You know, whether I was going to be the person on stage or if I was the person writing the songs for the people on stage or if I was the one helping people find their money as a music publisher 
or if I was going to be the A&R finding the talent, I was going to be in the music business. That is what I wanted to do. You know, um, my path had a, a particular direction and this is what I'm doing now. You know, however, like it was always a focus on making it a career. And I knew that financial benefits would come from that. You know, was I like, am I striving to like, you know, make sure that I'm making a millions of dollars every, every week? No, that would be nice if I could, but that's not what my driving force is. My driving force is to, you know, perform, but do this as a career that I don't have to worry about that. And guys like Prince and Michael Jackson back in the day, like a lot of those, a lot of those pop stars from the eighties and back in that era, they're one take guys. Like they, they would be able to go into the studio and they do things that people might be able to calculate things close to that today with the engineering and production and the, the expanding technology and things constantly moving forward to, to just increase the sound quality. But it's, uh, it's funny that you bring those names up because they were guys who were not that like, obviously they cared about their commercial success, but they're doing things that people would not be able to do today that are maybe reaching similar numbers that people were back in the day. Yeah. Because they were serious artists. They were artists. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're, you're an artist first and foremost, you can, you can definitely separate the artist from the, you know, the novelist, like the, the per- person that's just doing it as a novelist. You know what I mean? Um, and you can tell right away when you work with them, whether or not they're bullshit or they're actually like worth their salt in this industry. You know, it's, it's really to tell those people, you know, tell those people apart, you know? So I, I guess it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's what you want out of your career, but to say, you know, and I, and I'm going to say this again, but to say that making money and, you know, making a living and, and being comfortable and whatever that comfort looks like for you and saying that you don't want that. And you're a sellout and people calling you a sellout because that is what happens, or that's what you, you know, try to try to make sure that your craft is as good to be able to compete in those markets. Calling you a sellout is just one, it's wrong. And then two, you're lying to yourself. If you think that you want to get in this in this industry and not have a financial benefit, only going to push you further. Yeah, it's weird to me because the the concept of a sellout never comes internally. It's always from an external pressure being put upon you. Like when you're younger and you're a kid and you're dreaming about what you want to do, you're always dreaming towards the upper echelon. You're looking at the people that are the best at the craft that you are interested in. Like Michael Jackson or Mike Trout in baseball or whatever it is. And then gradually when you become older, I think that you may adjust your goals or your visions based on what you think other people want or is acceptable to other people. Like sell like if I make a lot of money, like maybe people will look down upon me for wanting to make this much money doing what I'm doing or things like that. So like it it's almost like you go through the pressure of so many people inserting their own opinions on you that's not present when you first have that dream yeah and i think that's you know that's an important thing too it's it's like to make music for yourself as much as you do for everybody else you know um because the reverse happens when say you write a record that is so popular you know so popular in the pop realm that so many people love you for this particular thing and when and then you change that and it may be a little bit more artistic and not as pop driven it has maybe a little bit more indie vibe to it then yeah. they say that you've lost your your flair you know what i mean so it's like yeah, you know kind of listening to the critics in a way is 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 often the demise of of most artists as well because at that point you're trying to figure out what's working you know what i mean like you're like you're looking outside of yourself for an answer on your your inner artistic creative thing Speaking of selling out, I know obviously a lot of times the the music industry pushes sexuality before your brain or your marketable skills. And I saw that you said your mom and your stepdad made it important to speak appropriately, be a businesswoman. And if people don't respect you, then to not do business with them, like keep your spirit and keep your body intact as well. And 
you've been in the music industry for a while and you've had so many experiences. How do you think that mentality as a young age to protect your spirit and put your brains before your body has shaped your success and using your marketable skills first? And if people don't want that, then you'd rather not work with them or pursue some other option? I I think it's definitely uh, taken the riffraff out of my career. You know, um, I think like the energy that I put out with being a person that is respected, you know, for more so than just like my looks and, you know, being like the woman or, you know, and, and seen in this kind of like sexual kind of way, you know, has, has helped me in having people that are on the same wavelength gravitate towards being on my team, you -hmm. know? people that see the creative entity as being way more important than all of the outside kind of things. The outside things are, are definitely marketable, I guess, however you want to see marketing in this, in this way, whatever that looks like to people nowadays, you know, but I think for me, it's kind of, you know, deflected people that have had particular energies and particular types of motivations that were not necessarily of the caliber of what I would you know, want to have in my life, kept that away from me. You know, I'm a strong believer in, in, in what you put out into the world, you know, kind of reflect, you know, comes back to you. Um, and sometimes you got to learn different things, you know, from, from different experiences to, to learn about who you are. But because I've always been kind of a person that's like, you know, like I can call bullshit really quickly. Like, I think it's less than the amount of people that will try and come and take advantage of me in certain, in certain instinct, you know, in certain areas. And well, I do, I do have to say when you do shine a light on your own body or your style, your swag is always on point. Every interview I've seen picture when I was at Red Rocks, like your style is always on point and it's, uh, it's pretty cool to watch. And you, I saw you've said that like in the past, you may have not had great style early on when you were a kid or you kind of felt like a tomboy. And I've definitely tried to embrace my own style when I'm older or as I'm getting older and constantly improve it. Do you think there was a turning point where you started to care more about your style in terms of like communicating your personality and kind of just like looking like a badass whenever you're on stage or around people and just sending a message with what you're wearing? Yeah, but I think that came way later, like with my experiences of working in retail, (laughs) like working in West Hollywood and uh, being surrounded by people where that was literally a part of their entire brand as actresses, as models, as, you know, book writers going to you know, the red carpet and, and whatever my former boss and like all of these things like that, that attention to detail became a, a little bit more a part of my, I, I would say my consciousness, because like, when I was in college, it just wasn't like, you know, <laughs> I wore what I could afford, yeah. which wasn't much. And, you know, like I, I dressed like the people that were around me and we had a different way of, of dressing. And, you know, I look at back at pictures now and I'm like, oh my God, what was I thinking? Yeah. You know, that was basically what was around me influenced my, my, my dress decisions. And none of my friends were stylists. We wore baggy pants and head wraps and, you know, like it's just like yeah. a that stuff. And it was very like, you know, uh, uh, culturally, uh, you know, kind of experimental and, and what we were wearing. Um, and it, it really wasn't until, you know, I would say probably like my, my mid like twenties, I'm not trying to make myself sound crazy old. Um, but like in my retail world, when I really started to kind of meet a lot of people that were doing really well in, mm-hmm. in the trees that were popular figures, you know, and meeting a lot of different styles and stuff where I kind of started to take note cause I was <laughs> seeing other people, you know, so I had to make sure that oh, they were sure. good. So I just kind of took that into my own into my own. And, you know, as you get older, you start to realize what looks good on you, what colors you like, you kind of have this uniform, you know, that you kind of like to wear. And yeah, everyone has that identifiable uniform, like a 
people don't. Some people need help. You know, there's there's instances where I I literally will have to do something and you like know you'll tell your friend they're not leaving the house until they put this on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm like I'm not sure how I should dress for this particular moment. So, you know, I'll call a stylist friend of mine or I'll call call our stylist and they help me out. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? I definitely went through a similar thing in in college. I'm about 2 years out of school, but I would just, you know, wear sweatpants or whatever I could afford at the time. And it's not like I can afford the best clothes now, but I'm in the process of moving into Brooklyn and everyone is always on point all the time. So it's like in school when I wanted to walk outside to get food, it would be like, I'm going to tank top and sweatpants. And now I'm just like, hmm, maybe I should like throw on my best pair of joggers and like put on this sick hat just to like walk 40 feet outside my apartment and get a coffee. And, uh, and other people may be like, oh, wow, like, that's a sick outfit. And I'm just like, yeah, I put a, put a lot of thought into this just to walk 40 feet and go back into my apartment and then put back my sweatpants on. If it makes you feel good, that's literally all that matters. You out of the house and you're like, I look good today. Like, that's all it's about. Yeah, no, I like, I like looking good. And I like just like, you can, uh, like once you're confident in what you're wearing like obviously it's more important to be confident in yourself first but what you're wearing can add that next level because if you're confident in it then you're just like oh well if someone else doesn't like it like i don't really give a fuck like i I feel swagged out right now exactly um but yeah i i wanted to end off i was speaking to your manager lisa and she told me that you have a new single on your own yes and i wanted to I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that and some of the inspirations behind it. Amazing. Um, yeah, so I have a track that is uh, going to be released on November 2nd through Electra, um, Electra Records. Um, and it is called Great For You. It is featuring um, a group out based out here in Los Angeles called Braves. And uh, basically, it's my friend Johnny Watt is the producer and then two brothers, uh, uh, Torald and Isaac Corin, um, who are the most phenomenal singers and songwriters that a girl could ever work with. Um, we co-wrote this song together, I would say about a year ago, and we've been kind of like honing into developing my sound and, you know, me trying to focus on what I wanted that to feel like, you know, I've, I've, you know, grown up listening to a lot of different alternative and obviously like hip hop music. And, you know, I have a soulful voice, but I'm not necessarily something, you know, somebody that, that is interested in going into like full urban R and B world. That's not really, you know, what my focus is. So the song is kind of like a, a accumulation of, of these various kind of sounds. And I call it left of center pop. Um, so kind of like if you were, you know, kind of, of thinking of like Portis, if Portis had Mike Snow and Sia had a baby, what would that sound like? Okay. <laughs> gotcha. kind of like I'm visualizing. Like, yeah, that's kind of the idea. So um, the song in, in, in general is it's a conversation between two individuals, one which has fallen into complicated feelings with someone that she knows isn't going to be a good match for her outside of friendship. And what that looks like and, you know, kind of the response from the male perspective of, you know, am I missing out on something because I'm floating in outer space here or is this just not, you know, this is just not the right thing for me. You know, it's kind of falling for somebody that is, is, is unreachable. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that, you know, it came about just in the room talking to the guys about, you know, my experiences in life over the last like year or so. And, you know, I stumbled up on the, you know, stumbled up on this story um, about someone that I was having those complicated feelings for. And, and the statement was, I would be great for him, but he wouldn't be good for me. And we kind of turned that into the song that you'll hear in November. Is the songwriting process similar at all to what you've done in the past because i know you tend to work with one or two people in a room like I, I saw you said you don't really like working with that many people like in the room at the same time like for as a solo artist is it similar to what you've done in the past in terms of the actual process or 
Yeah. And I tend to work with people I'm a bit more comfortable with. And I'm very, very, I have a very, you know, like it, the way that I'm approaching things, like, you know, I'm, I'm choosing people based upon what I feel they could bring to the table with my vision in mind, yeah. you know? So, um, I'm, you know, kind of taking the approach where I'm open to working with different people, but I also have a very specific kind of territory I'm reaching into. And if I don't feel that say the producer that I'm working with or the, you know, co-songwriter that I'm, I'm working with is going to kind of get what I'm talking about, then I tend to not work with them on this. Um, and, uh, you know, I also like, you know, kind of writing on my own as well. So, you know, like I'll, I'll kind of dive into just like ideas and stuff and I'll take it over to, you know, whoever I've been working with, I have like a few people, like a handful of people that I've been working with consistently on uh, trying to really develop my sound Braves being one of them. Yeah. I'm going to take it to them and I'll say like, yo, you know, I have this idea. It's not fully flushed in the way that I want it to be. Let's see what we can do with this. And we'll go from there. Yeah. And it's so important in any creative endeavor just to have people that are on board with what you're trying to communicate and your vision. So I'm sure that makes a world of difference. Yeah. I love the collaborative process in that way. You know, it really kind of forces you outside of your own box, you know, it kind of, it makes the song that much more, you know, kind of, I would say like inspiring in this way to know that you were able to work with your friends on it or people that you respect in your field, you know, and, and make something that is, you know, viable for other people to connect to, you know, if you're comfortable with people, then you know that they're not bullshitting you because you're getting an objective outside opinion. And if it's someone that you've worked with in the past, most of the time, they're just going to be honest and upfront, I'm sure. So you don't have to worry about someone that's just like saying yes to you because they're trying to be nice or something like that. Amazing. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. But yeah, thank you, Noel, for taking the time to sit down and talk. I really do appreciate it. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode with Noel Skaggs. Before you tune out, we would love if you could subscribe, rate, and comment on our podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. We do these interviews all on our own time and money outside of our full-time jobs, which we love, by the way. Even one five-star rating helps us gain more visibility in the iTunes store, or maybe even just tell a friend about us. We are incredibly grateful for every one of you who tune in to listen to these conversations, and you are the reason why we can keep doing what we're doing. Have an incredible rest of the week. Until next time. Loving you is lonely. Feels like I'm with everyone but you. It's like I'm dying slowly. Surviving on a fantasy of you, you Just another heartbreak, you, you Just another pipe dream
for me, but I'd be great for you. Oh.